0: All right, enough of that. If you got your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and then 2 Samuel chapter 14, Acts 1 and 2 Samuel 14. Uh, I want you to know this beforehand. I got very convicted in my study time on this particular message, and uh, if you are someone like me, and I think there's a lot of us in this city, if you would consider yourself a do-gooder, this is a message for you, okay? Do-gooder being somebody where you want to help, uh, you want to participate, you want to uh, help people uh, move forward, you you want to do good things uh, uh, for For the world around you. Uh, The problem for do-gooders is there is a fine line between doing good, helping, and meddling. And we're going to talk about meddling today, all right? In fact, our study starts with this question. Have you ever meddled in someone else's business before, all right? Uh, If you are a parent, this is a great message for you today. If you have a best friend that you love and they are not making good decisions right now, this is a great message for you today. If you've got a brother or sister that's wandered, this is a great message for you to get to hear today. Now, just so you know, I want to give you a definition of meddling. You ready? The definition of meddling. To interfere or busy oneself with something that is not one's concern. Let me say that again. To interfere or busy oneself with something that is not one's concern. Now, helping is when the Holy Spirit stirs us to do something uh, for someone in the name of Jesus Christ. Meddling, meddling can be summed up in three little words, make it happen, right? And in this city, a lot of you are in your job because you are make it happen people, right? You are get it done uh, people. When it comes to the voice of the Spirit, we follow and we help. But when we meddle, Metal is taking matters into our own hands, busying ourselves with something that is not our concern. When you set one of your friends up on a date with someone else, there's a point when it's helping, and there's a point when it's meddling. All right? You know the difference between the two. When you offer a job prospect for somebody, there's a point when it's helping. And then there's a point when it's meddling, right? Make it happen. The most, uh, uh, the most famous example of meddling in cinema has to be the great movie, The Parent Trap. You ever seen The Parent Trap before? Okay, Parent Trap with Haley Mills was the original. How many of you remember Haley Mills' Parent Trap? How many of you remember Lindsay Lohan' Parent Trap? There you go. Wow, more in the room. That, that is our church, Megan. That's how it works, right? Uh, anyway, Parent Trap, it's the same in both editions. It's, uh, it's the ultimate in meddling, right? Two twins separated at birth, all of a sudden meet at camp. Uh, one has a parent in, uh, uh, in England, one has a parent in California, and they decide they're going to meddle in their parents' lives and try to force them back together. And lo and behold, after a big scheme is put together, all of a sudden uh, they fall in love, their parents fall in love again on a camping trip in California, all right? That's the way it goes. Can I just tell you that never happens? <laughs> ever, all right? That one time in that fictional movie, that's when that happens, all right? It doesn't happen that way, right? What they did was meddling. The scheme, Hollywood style, is that it could end up really, really good. It's been my experience on this side in ministry. Anytime we try to parent trap a situation, it ends up an absolute mess. Why? Because Acts 1, chapter 4, or Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, gives us a good, a bit of insight into that. Because God is the one who writes the stories of reconciliation. Look with me, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is Jesus' take on uh, us trying to meddle. It says, On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with the disciples, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. He says, wait for it. Underline wait for it. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Underline, it's not for you to know the times or the dates, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus looks at his disciples and they're going, Lord, what are we supposed to do? You ascend to heaven, you're going to go, what is it that we're supposed to do? We don't want to screw this up. And I'm telling you, Jesus then looks at the disciples and says, don't worry about it. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This idea of baptism is that you are one way and then you are different. I mean, you are changed after you receive this counselor. And they look at him just like anybody in an office here in DC and they go, yeah, Jesus, but when? When? Let me circle it on the calendar. Let me put it on my to-do list. And here's the thing. The disciples at this point are not trying to be selfish here. They're looking at Jesus going, we don't want to screw this up. This is so important. We don't want to mess this up. Give us the date. Give us the time. And Jesus looks at them and says, it's not for you to know the dates or the times that the father set by his own authority. He says, but you just be ready to receive that power when the spirit comes upon you. If you're taking notes, you ready for this? So what do you do when you're just so nervous? If you don't take anything else away from today, good little line here. You ready? When we feel compelled to act but lack clear direction, time spent in prayer is time well spent. Let me say that again. When we feel compelled to act but lack clear direction, time spent in prayer is time well spent. A lot of us, myself included, hear this and go, I get it. But what about when it's your brother? What about when it's your sister? What about when it's your mom or your dad or someone that you care for so very deeply? What about when it's your spouse? In those circumstances, isn't it okay to stir and to make it happen? Isn't it good? Wouldn't God want something good to take place in their life? You got to know when you feel that urge, that stirring to do something, but the spirit doesn't give you clarity on what that thing is. It's time that you pray. It's time that you ask God to help. When we don't, we meddle. We come up with our own plan to make it happen. Got a dear friend that taught me about meddling. In fact, it's kind of sad today. I've got several stories of negative stories to tell you about times that I've meddled. I'm a true do-gooder at heart. Most preachers are. Uh, It was a story where I really got to learn what meddling produces. We had a young man came to our college ministry years ago in young adult ministry. And um, really, he was... Struggling at work, and I'll never forget. Worked on a cotton farm, uh, and uh, they had his house on the farm uh, there. He was working as a as a farmhand, and uh, uh, the owner of the farm came to us. The owner of the gin came up and said, "Hey, I think he's about to lose his job." And he said, "He's come to your church." Um, he said, "I know that he's not a regular, but he's really going to need some help uh, when he finally does lose his job." And so we said, "Okay, you know, we'll be prepared for that and ready." And so he comes. We have a great experience with him. Um, his father had abandoned him when he was young. His mom had some issues of her own that she was navigating. And uh, he just was 18 years old and just completely and totally alone. He plugs in at the church, ends up receiving Christ and getting saved. and It's just this beautiful, beautiful story. Well, sure enough, he does lose his job. And one of the professors uh, at the university uh, who was uh, working as the department director for us. Um, when he lost his job, he said, you know, I'm single, I got an extra room. He said, I want him to move in with me. He said, I feel like the Spirit's telling me, and I truly believe that that's what happened. He said, My, the Spirit's been telling me, I need to invite him to come and live with me. So, young man moves in, and then all of a sudden, that professor and I sat down, both of us around the same age. We sat down, and on a yellow sheet of paper, we outlined... What this man's life was going to become, we wrote down where he was going to live. We wrote down what job he could have. We wrote down where, uh, like uh, how he could save money, how he could gather furniture. Um, we wrote down all these different things about his life. And here's the thing: he didn't want any of those things. But we sat there as people who were living in the middle class going, well, who wouldn't want these things? Who wouldn't want a life like this? And we put this thing together. And I'll never forget, we finally get to the point where he's about to move out, and you could tell he was very, very nervous. He couldn't stay at the professor's house, but he had all this stuff. And so, again, he's in this new job. He even had an opportunity to have part of his college paid for. I mean, there were all these different things. One day, I'm across the street from the church at the rib crib. You ever been to the rib crib before? met the rib crib, and uh, all of a sudden, eating lunch, and we hear a crash out in front of the, ha- out in front of the restaurant, and uh, go outside, and when we do, there was a young man on a bike who'd been hit by a car, it's a Lexus SUV coming across, and the young man is laying in a pool of his own blood right there in front of the rib crib, and it's this young man. It turns out that he had chosen to try to attempt suicide by driving his bike out in traffic and getting hit by a car. Well, you want to talk about a God-ordained appointment? I'm at the restaurant where it has happened right in front, right there on Slide Road in Lubbock, Texas. I walk outside. I see him. He's lying in a pool of his own blood. We thought he was going to die right there in the street. And I said, are you okay? And he goes, what are you doing here? I said, I was just eating across the street. He goes, I don't want to do it. I don't want the list. I don't want that life. And all of a sudden, we just have this heavy, heavy discussion right there with him bleeding in the middle of the road. We get to the hospital. And while we're at the hospital, the professor and I meet together, and we look and went, what's a win for him? What is it that we can truly do to help him in this circumstance? I had baptized him in a Hampton Inn swimming pool on a mission trip we did to New Orleans. I said, we don't ever want him to end up in the street again. I said, that's number one. We said, number two, we want him to know God. And number three, we want him to be godly. The rest of it, the Lord can direct him as he sees fit. Can I tell you the beautiful end of the story? We stopped meddling. We started helping. And now he does live in a nice place. He has held down a good job. He has been able to experience the Lord and continues to go to church each week. I tell you that to say this, it's a fine line between helping and meddling, but it's a very, very important line that do-gooders have to figure out. we got to figure out how to not get in the Lord's way. When we feel compelled to act, but lack direction, we got to pray, and it is time well spent. Some of you with older kids have to learn that lesson very heavily. You can't make them make good decisions, can you? So it begs the big million-dollar question. You Ready? What happens when we meddle? What happens when we meddle? Now flip over 2 Samuel chapter 14, and we're gonna start in verse 1. And we're going to continue our study of the story of Absalom. Uh, And uh, In this story, we have a character named Joab. Joab wasn't just anybody. Joab was the mightiest of the mighty men. He's David's commander. Uh, And Joab, seeing that Absalom and David are estranged, and this is interesting, seeing that Nathan the prophet has stood up to David with a parable, and that called him out of the bad relationship with Bathsheba, we're going to see a little twinge of that. But he does it. When and does it, it is of God and spirit stirred. When Joab does it here, it is a scheme and it is meddling. And let's look at what happens. of the question, what happens when we meddle? Now look at 2 Samuel 14, starting in verse 1. It says, so Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Now remember, Absalom is living at his grandpa's house in a different country because uh, Absalom's brother Amnon raped Absalom's sister. And then Absalom then in cold blood kills Amnon. And so he's living in exile. David is refusing to address the problem uh, because, again, Absalom, uh, Absalom has not shown any remorse for what he has done. And so now we get to verse 2. It says, So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, Pretend you're in mourning. Dress in the mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put words in her mouth. Under Line and Joab put words in her mouth. It says, when the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor, and she said, help me, O king. And the king asked her, what is troubling you? Now stop right there for just a minute. Nathan shares a parable with David. What Joab does here is falsifies a Supreme Court case to try to get David to reconcile with his son. But here's the problem. If Absalom is not sorry for murdering his brother... And if David is not ready to reconcile with them, one's not ready and one's not sorry. It is not a situation where they need to reconcile at this point. The foundation is not in place. And David knows that. And he's waiting for Absalom to come along. But Joab seeing it goes, oh, the country's divided over this issue. Half the country's with Absalom saying he was justified to murder Amnon. And the other half is going, you can't just murder people without a fair trial. We would have no rule of law whatsoever. He has to stand trial trial for what he has done. David, realizing that this is the mess, continues to leave it on the back burner. But Joab then comes in and forces the hand. We're going to do something that we never do here at Waterfront. We're about to skip some verses. Can I tell you why? And you can go back and read them if you want to. The Supreme Court case that Joab puts together is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And when you read it, it is supposed to read ridiculous. Ridiculous. It makes no sense. In fact, where Nathan speaks to David so powerfully, I truly believe through the power of the Spirit, when he speaks in this amazing way and shares, David then receiving it goes, oh, I have sinned against the Lord and against him only. It's a powerful moment where David receives it from Nathan, so much so that David even names one of his sons Nathan because of that experience he had with the prophet. In this passage, David knows immediately This is something that Joab has schemed, not something that the Lord has done. Look at verse 19. If you want to go back and read those other verses, you can. It's meant to not make sense. You ready for verse 19? It says, the king then said, isn't this the hand of Joab with you in all this? Underline, isn't this the hand of Joab with you in all this? That's a huge change from I've sinned against the Lord and him only. David doesn't feel conviction here. Instead, David looks at the woman who's offering up the false Supreme Court case and goes, Joab put you up to this, and he puts you up to this in front of the entire king's court. Now the divided country, you're forcing me to make a decision on this before Absalom is sorry for what he's done. It says, the woman answered, as surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this, who put me up with all these words into my mouth for your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in this land. The king then said to Joab, very well, I'll do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Now stop right there for just a minute. What happens when we meddle? Number one, we take delicate matters into our hands that were meant for God's hands. We take delicate matters into our hands that were meant for God's hands. I have this picture in my head of Joab. Nathan stood up to David. Nathan spoke this story this parable to him and then Nathan got to be the name of one of the king's sons and you picture Joab in this circumstance going I want there to be Nathan little Nathan and little Joe playing together in David's household one day I want to be the one that speaks the truth in his life the same way and when he does David looks and he goes you just called me on this before it's ready the concrete has not set on the foundation and you have just called me to do this. You have just taken what was meant for God's hands and you've put it into your own. When I was a kid, my dad took me out driving. Six years old. Do you ever go driving with your parent when you were six years old? You don't actually drive. They sit you in their lap. We're out on a country Texas road. He sits me in his lap and he goes, son, you want to drive the car? puts my hands on the steering wheel, and then he put his hands over my hands. I remember he's working the pedals at six. I don't even know that pedals are supposed to be working on a car, right? All of a sudden, I'm steering, but he's there with me. He's the one who's actually steering. He's the one, listen to me, who's actually driving the car. When it comes to the work in someone's life, a true supernatural work, you can't do anything good on your own. You're the kid in the driver's seat, But the Lord's hands are on your hands. He's the one working the pedals, making it go. Listen to me. What if a six-year-old then looks and goes, Sorry, Dad, I got this. You get out of the seat. I'm going to do some driving. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get into a wreck, and somebody's going to get hurt. That's what happens when we meddle. When we take it upon ourselves to make it happen, when the Holy Spirit has told us to wait, when we do that, it ends up creating an absolute mess. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God calls on us to assist in a person's story from time to time, not to write it. Let me say it again. God calls on us to assist in a person's story from time to time, not to write it. I've never done this before. I've been guilty of meddling. Had someone meddle in my life when I was younger, and it was a minister that was very, very well-meaning. But I was really going for it in my relationship with God, really growing about 16 years old. And I had a minister come up to me, and for whatever reason, he pointed to a girl in the student ministry in another town and said, I've prayed about it, and I think you're supposed to marry that girl. 16 years old. Not only that, his wife had said the same thing to the girl about me. So a whole lot of pressure, and... I'm telling you, don't do that, all right? Just don't do that. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. So for us, we live in different towns, and all of a sudden, we try to start to force this relationship, this friendship. And so halfway for both of us was Amarillo, Texas. And so I'd make the two-hour drive from Lubbock. She'd make the two-hour drive from where she was from. And I remember one particular time, we got together in Amarillo We went to a movie, sat in silence at the movie, and then I said, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And we were walking around this little park area. We walked for 45 minutes, and neither one of us said a word for 45 minutes. Finally, after 45 minutes, it was so awkward. I was like, I don't think we're supposed to get married. And she was like, oh, thank God, I don't either. She was like, this was awful. And I'm telling you, all of a sudden, we had things in common. We could have a friendship after that. I mean, it just was a really crazy, bizarre situation. Well, here's the deal. It's meddling that was meddling to speak that over a couple where there was no or over over two people where there was no biblical basis for it that is very harmful and i'm telling you we got to make sure that we don't do that stuff if god doesn't tell you to do something if the spirit doesn't give you something very specific to do don't be the one that puts weights and burdens on people and if you feel stirred to do something what are you supposed to do pray If you feel stirred to do something but have no true direction on it, spend time in prayer. It begs the question, should you spend energy praying for patience instead of scheming? Should you spend energy praying for patience instead of scheming? You will never hear out of my mouth, God told you to marry that person over there. He would tell you way before he told me, all right? Just letting you know. Now look at the next part. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 22 through 24. Here's what it says next. It says, so Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay David honor, and he blessed the king. And Joab said to him, today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord, the king, because the king has granted this servant his request. Woo! Little Joe is going to be on the way, right? He's going to be the next, he's going to be the next uh, prince here in Israel. Verse 23, it says, then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Verse 24, but the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. Underline, he must go to his own house, he must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and he did not see the face of the king. You're going to find in the next passage we read, David's not ready and Absalom's not sorry. Reconciliation cannot happen until both those elements are prepared. And what Joab has done is by making it happen, by meddling, he has created a situation where they are building a house before the concrete's dry on the foundation. What's going to happen? It's going to split right down the middle. You got to know. David, up until this point, it's been real easy to call out David and say that he's been neglectful. At this point, it's a little bit of the opposite. David is now looking at Joab going, you created a false Supreme Court situation. You've called me out in front of the entire country that's already divided on this issue. And he looks at Joab and goes, if I have to make a decision today, yes, we'll bring him back, but I cannot see his face until he's ready to own up that he murdered his brother in cold blood. What his brother did was awful. What his brother did was terrible. Uh, He is not deserving of death for this murder that he has done. And yet he still needs to be Needs to pay for what he has done. There is still a level of payment that needs to happen here. If you're taking notes, write this down. What happens when we meddle? Number one, we take delicate matters into our hands that were meant for God's hands. And number two, we risk engineering a moment before the foundation is solid. We risk engineering a moment before this foundation is solid. One of my closest friends in the world right now, Brother Sam. Sam and I did not start out close. Any of you got a little brother or a little sister? Some of you who are the oldest in this room. Or maybe you're the youngest, and you're the one who gets shunned by your older brother or older sister. I was three and a half years older than my brother Sam. I am three, I am three and a half years older than my brother Sam. But growing up, that three and a half years, four school grades was a pretty big deal. And so I was always trying to get away from him. Um, and the truth is, he's, he's a wonderful. He's a wonderful man. He was a wonderful young man. But it just was the way that brothers are. And so um, all that to say, sometimes I'm ashamed early where I tried to get away from him. And then the Lord brought us together. And when I was serving as a student minister, there was a stretch where my brother was the worship leader uh, that played for our ministry. And so we got to serve the Lord alongside each other. Sam went through some stuff, specifically with my dad, like preacher's kids do. And Sam was estranged from our part of the family. And then in my relationship with him, there was about five years where we just didn't speak at all. Um, What the Lord did, every time we would see each other, and there were a couple of weddings that we got to work kind of through this whole process, and I would think whenever we were going to be together at the wedding, I got to make this happen i got to make this reconciliation happen. There's no problem with me. The problem's with him. I just need to instigate this and see if he wants to be friends again. And every time I would do that, all it would do was refill his anger meter, and it would push him even further away. Every time I tried to help, it would just push him further and further away. And then you know what I would do? I would go home to Autumn, and I'd be like, See, it's his problem, not mine. When the truth was, I was meddling I wasn't praying for him. I was meddling. Well, finally, we have the situation where my father passes away. My brother comes back before the funeral, and then he comes back for the funeral itself, even came here to D.C. to hear Dad preach the last time here at Waterfront. I'll never forget. We're still estranged, but I had had a mentor tell me, how often do you pray for your brother? And it really hit me hard. I prayed for him, but a lot of times it was wake him up because I'm right and he's wrong. All of a sudden, I began to genuinely pray for him, and I prayed that my heart would be prepared so that we could one day be reconciled, and I dreamed of it. Well, one day on Christmas Eve, out of the blue, I just finished preaching the waterfront service here on Christmas Eve, and a phone rings. We're in the car with Autumn and the kids. Our, our Christmas tradition is we drive to Cheesecake Factory in Roslyn after the church service is over, and we get, the, uh, we get Cheesecake Factory to go and then take it back uh, to the house. And so we're in the car just after picking it up, and all of a sudden, Christmas Eve, my brother calls. It's just a random call, and he just said, hey, I just wanted to hear your voice. And I said, this is great. I mean, again, we hadn't talked in, in years at this point. I said, well, yeah, it's, it's great to hear you. Do you need anything? And then he goes, there you go, pushing again. There you go pushing. I go, no, no, I'm just glad you called. Hang up the phone. And then for six months after that, I prayed for him every single day. I'm preaching a youth camp for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Six months later, at First Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas, and my brother was heavy on my heart because it was the first time I'd been in that sanctuary since I had preached my father's funeral in that same room. After the service is over, I'm kneeling at the altar praying, and I am praying for my brother there at the altar. Again, the room had reminded me of him. And all of a sudden, my phone buzzes in my pocket. And you know who it was? It was Sam. First time since Christmas Eve. And all of a sudden, this summer camp, it buzzes in my pocket. Well, I'm just like, whoa, I'm getting. I run out to the side, answer the phone, and I go, Sam, are you okay? I go, I was literally just praying for you. He said, yeah. He goes, I had some things going on. He shared information that we didn't have previously. And then all of a sudden, that was where the Lord started opening the door for true reconciliation. I'm grateful to tell you today, after being estranged, he is one of my best friends in the entire world. And we got to spend time with his kids and our kids together. It was the first time ever all of his children, all of my children, my sister and my mom were together in the same room and it happened this last week. Listen, in his timing, it's not for you to know the days or the hours. It's not for you to know that the Father has designed by his own hand, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you need to move, he'll tell you to move. What are we supposed to do until then? Wait and pray faithfully wait and pray. You couldn't work the pedals at six years old if you wanted to in that Chevy, all right? I'm telling you, the Lord is the one who has to do it. If taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Only God knows when someone's heart is ready to reconcile. Only God knows when someone's heart is ready to reconcile. Can I tell you what I love about that statement? Even you don't know when your heart is ready to reconcile. The other person doesn't know when their heart is ready to reconcile. Only the Lord knows when that moment is right. It begs the question, are you ready for this? Should you leave it alone? Should you leave it alone? There's some of you in this room, and you are go, 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 do, do, do. And the most godly thing you can do is pray and let it be until the Lord stirs the perfect timing. We're going to skip a few more verses, but we're going to come back to them as our central verses next week. Now flip over 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 28 through 33. This is a crazy story that some of you may not have even known is in Scripture, and it's the end of our meddling journey. Are you ready for this? Verse 28. It says, so Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Remember, it's three years he's been in exile, and now it's been two more years. He's in Jerusalem, but he's not sorry, and David's not ready. Verse 29, it says, then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him uh, to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent the second time, but he refused to come. Now look at this, but then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field's next to mine. He has some barley over there. Go set it on fire. I want you to underline and highlight, go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. It says, then Joab did go to him. (laughs) Underline, then Joab did go to him. Uh, Why has your servant set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and I'm here and I can send you to the king and ask, why have I come here from Gesher? It would have been better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king, told him this, and the king summoned Absalom and came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. Underline the king kissed Absalom. This is the official kiss. This is not him actually showing affection. What happens here is what happens when we meddle. Number three, when we meddle, we get burned. Write that down. We get burned. What Absalom has done here is Absalom has no one who is his advocate in the country at this point because the country is divided on the issue. David's looking going, man, I can't meet with him until he's sorry about what he's done. And because of that, David's isolated, but he's trying to protect his son in that. He's trying to be just in this circumstance. And Joab, because he's forced the issue, he's built the house on a foundation that wasn't settled. All of a sudden, Absalom goes, nobody will talk to me. But Joab's the reason I'm back here in the first place. And so what does he do? He goes to the meddler because you have created yourself as the middle person in that mess. He sets his field on fire, which is a picture. This young man who felt justified in murder now feels justified to do whatever the heck he wants to get his way, even set the field on fire of the person who's trying to help him. You want to know the saddest part of this whole story? Joab kills Absalom. Spoiler alert. Joab, who wanted there to be peace in the family, is the one who eventually will take a spear and pin that sucker to a tree and take his life viciously. Meddling? Meddling is not a godly work in any way, shape, or form. Do you hear me? It's a do gooder pursuit. But it's a faithless pursuit. It's a belief that you have to make it happen and that God can't make it happen. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? If you insert yourself as a central figure in someone's reconciliation story, don't be surprised when some of their raw negative emotion spills onto you. Let me say that again. If you insert yourself as a central figure in someone's reconciliation story, don't be surprised when some of their raw negative emotion spills onto you one final story and we'll call it a day. Went on a family vacation years ago to New Orleans and uh, saw the greatest fireworks show ever. And that's really saying something uh, living here in DC because we get the best ones here. But this one was special because we watched it on the Mississippi River. And uh, while the fireworks display was going on, it'd been going on, I mean, maybe two minutes at this point. And one of the workers accidentally kicks over one of the ladders And the ladder then is just shooting there and we see a firework go off on the boat. This is a boat just off the shore. And all of a sudden we see a firework go off on the boat. And we're watching this like, whoa, this is interesting, you know. It's a little bit low on that one, guys, you know. And then all of a sudden we hear, abandon ship, abandoned ship. And we're like, this just got interesting. We watch it. These men are jumping off of the boat into the water. And then the next 45 seconds were pretty spectacular. All of a sudden they're on the boat. I mean, everything is going off right there. The fire is just everywhere. And you see the workers just floating in the water watching. All that money just go right there. Again, it was incredible. It was frightening, but it was absolutely incredible. Get to watch from the side. Here's what happens when you meddle. When you meddle, it's like the starter turning over and you go, I did not envision this. This was not my plan. I just thought I would be a part of the reconciliation process. But only God can see the heart of man. Amen. Only God knows. When the time is right. So when you feel stirred, pray, pray, pray. In fact, one of the things that I love to pray is, God, if I'm supposed to do something, let me know what it is. If I'm supposed to move, tell me what to do. God, I give this to you. And then sometimes you can even pray this. God, I don't know what to pray. Show me what to pray. Show me what to pray in this circumstance. The tighter we hold on and the more we try to make it happen, the less faith that's a part of the journey. It begs the question, have you considered the cost of becoming part of the narrative? Have you considered the cost of becoming part of the narrative? Meddling meddling leads to a mess. Helping is a process directed by the Holy Spirit. Is that a good word today? You do-gooders listening to me today? I'm telling you, I'm teaching you power if you're listening. We got to make sure that we're not meddling. Let's bow our heads for prayer.